Hello and welcome to today's Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Andy Burnham has been a lot of things in his time. Health Secretary, Culture Secretary, Chief Secretary to the Treasury in the last Labour government and twice contender for the Labour leadership. But in his current job as Labour Mayor for Greater Manchester, he arguably has more power and more room to manoeuvre than at any time before, with responsibility over health, transport, housing and policing in a region of nearly three million people and a bully pulpit to badger the government. It's helped him to build an independent northern power base that can sometimes irk Labour in London as much as it does the Conservatives. Andy Burnham has just declared that he'll stand for a third term as Greater Manchester Metro Mayor, rather than take what some would say is a golden opportunity to return to Parliament and be part of a Labour government. So what does Andy Burnham want? What does his Manchester experiment have to teach the rest of the country? And is he really done with Westminster? I took a trip to his offices in the rainy city to find out. Andy Burnham, you've been Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester since 2017. You've been in charge of a region of 2.8 million people through Brexit, the pandemic, four prime ministers, God knows how many chancellors. What has running Greater Manchester showed you about the business of running Britain that maybe being a minister and a shadow minister didn't? I think you just look at things through different eyes. You know, when you're in um, Whitehall departments, first of all, you're in a silo and you're in a sort of narrow policy sort of field, you know, be it health or home office. But it's also, the way I've always put it is you can only deal in sort of numbers from that level, statistics. Whereas as Mayor of Greater Manchester, you can deal with names, not numbers. You're building from the bottom up, you're close to the ground. I'm out and about speaking to people and, you know, it's just a completely different way of working, but a better way of working. And I would say, even though it's a kind of uh, early stage for devolution in England here and in the West Midlands and Liverpool City region and elsewhere, I would say this is quickly becoming the most functional layer of, of governance in the UK. Do you get buttonholed a lot? Do you have people pointing at potholes and street lamps? Oh, definitely. I get loads of that. But that's the point, isn't it? Um, you know, pre uh, the arrival of mayors in the city regions, where, where did people complain? You know, would they have been aware of their ward councillors, the leader of their councils, maybe, but not necessarily? Or who runs the trains and who runs the buses? And it's all a bit disjointed. Even if I don't run everything, at least people now have got one person to complain to, and they do. And they, you know, over social media, I'm responsible for everything, it would seem, in the, in the city region. But that then gets services to be more accountable for people, doesn't it? Once there is that focal point in the system... Uh, and I think that's the beauty of these roles. So you've just come back from South by Southwest, the music festival, where you're promoting Manchester to America alongside the New Order. I know. Well, I mean, at least you've been seen in the same room as Stephen Morris for the first time, you know, as your, your doppelganger. What, how do you explain Manchester to a potential inward investor in, say, Austin, Texas, where the festival takes place? What, how do you describe this place? Well, I, I did have the great privilege of introducing uh, New Order uh, on stage. Um, and I, I did get the opportunity to, to introduce the city, and I, I kind of uh, took people there through just a little bit of the history of you know a place that has kind of fought for for justice. Uh, you know, in very divided times, I, I pointed to the the cotton workers who took the stance against slave pit cotton 160 years ago and helped end the American Civil War. You know, that history is really relevant, I think, in these divided times where people are fighting culture wars. Manchester has stood out for 
social justice, for equality, for not just recently. They've done this for centuries here. And our story as a city, I think, makes this place, you know, an easy place to sell because it's it's been on the right side of things for 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 a very very long time and i think that story resonates in the in the sort of troubled times that we live now when you're back here and you're explaining the region's problems and challenges to whoever happens to be local government minister this week who might happen to see the north in general as an inconvenience what do you say to them where's this leveling up you promised us you know we're we're kind of waiting um so I kind of feel uh, that, you know, it was a kind of convenient narrative to talk about neglected towns post-Brexit. Well, fine. I, I, I represented uh, a place that needed investment and, you know, the, the polit- political class finally sort of woke up, it seemed, to the north-south divide. But it increasingly felt that it was a, a kind of a, a conversion of convenience uh, because when the pandemic hit and when we were really struggling here in the second half of 2020... They felt they could do things to people here that they would never have tried uh, on uh, places in the South. Uh, And, you know, I I dared answer them back. And, you know, they didn't like it very much, did they? Having made all of these promises to the North, it seemed that they were quickly in default mode in terms of kind of treating us in a a very different different way. Or you look at the trains, you know, would... would, would people have put up with the level of chaos that we've had to endure on our on our rail network? We'll, we'll know. And so it kind of says to me that the country, even though it's kind of taught the talk of levelling up, hasn't actually sort of followed it up yet. But, um, you know, I, I just don't think it's going away. They let a genie out of the bottle. Myself, Steve Rotherham, Tracy Brabin, Jamie Driscoll, uh, Oliver Coppard, you know, five Labour Northern mayors. You know, we're not letting this go now. The North has got a stronger political voice than it's ever had before. And we're using it. We're going to carry on using it. We're going to carry on answering back. And we're going to eventually make this country change and become more equal than it has been for all of our lives. So what's that meaning in concrete terms? Then, As you say, the North's got a, a stronger voice. What stuff are you starting to see materialised now from the efforts of mayors like yourself or other similar regions? The big one I would point to is what Greater Manchester now is on the cusp of delivering, and that is a London-style public transport system across our city region. The B network, it will be called here. That's because I've taken the decision to put buses back under public control after 37 years of deregulation. What that means is that I can integrate the bus fare box with the tram fare box and then have that single tap-in, tap-out system operating over both. You know, they'll all be in the same livery, um, yellow and black. The B has become a sort of a, a greater Manchester identity, not just the city of Manchester anymore. You know, it stands for what the city... It's what, everything I was saying before, actually. You know, a, a place where... You know, everyone's equal, where no one is more important than anyone anyone else, including the mayor, you know, where we, we kind of recognise our equality. And, you know, Manchester's been a place where everyone's worked for the common good. That's what's, uh, what, what's great about it. And the B network, buses returning to the control of the people, you know, the identity of the region very much on them. It's going to be a big moment for this city region when that starts in September. It is, it is kind of um, instructive when you hear certain London politicians and, and commentators just going, <clears throat> oh, they just go on about buses all the time as if it's an, an inconsequential thing. But it actually defines your life, doesn't it? You, you know, the, the state of the bus network determines what you can and can't do when you live around here. It's fine for, for them to say that when they've got buses that are much cheaper than ours. You know, how, how do they justify, how does anyone justify that, in fact? You know, that buses in London are cheaper than anywhere else in England. 
it's just unbelievable, isn't it? You know, particularly given that people's incomes are lower generally in other places and have to pay much more for public public transport. So they can kind of sneer all they like, but, you know, until they deliver equality and fairness for people in terms of access to public transport and the cost of public transport, then I'm, I'm sorry, but they're going to keep on hearing about it. It is a cliche to see Brexit as kind of the revolt of the regions about not being listened to in Westminster, not being paid attention to. Do you think that the main parties have properly got the message about what the rest of Britain and the North in particular want? Because the Conservatives just seem to be serving up uh, culture war grievance and Labour have an interesting devolution programme, which we can maybe talk about in a minute. But do you think it's kind of, as it kind of, the needs of the North of England made it into the policy engine room? No, I think it's as I was saying before, I think we're getting heard. And some people don't like the fact that we're getting heard. You know, I, I kind of hear noises off in London about, oh, this, this is anti-London. It's not. I just keep saying, alongside Stephen Tracy, we, we want the same that, that London has had. We want London-level fares on buses, trams, and trains. We, we want London-level frequency. Why not? Why shouldn't we have that? I think we're getting heard on those things. Has the political class in Whitehall and Westminster sort of kind of said, okay, we hear you, and this is how we're going to do it. Well, no, actually, that hasn't happened yet. But as I say, I think our voice is only getting stronger. I think the energy is more here now than it is in in London, if I'm honest. I think the pandemic has kind of tilted the scales a bit in our, in our direction. I think, you know, people can see there's a huge amount going on in Manchester. The skyline of our city is dramatically different. There's a kind of sense of this place is going up. Liverpool doing well as well, Eurovision coming. You know, I, I hear a lot of chatter amongst 20 and 30-somethings that, wow, why, why would you not want to live in Manchester where you can have a graduate job, but actually live in the city centre of Manchester with all of its vibrancy rather than sort of 15 miles out at the end of the Piccadilly line? You know, I think I think people are kind of saying, you know what, actually, this is the place where things are actually happening. And the Sunday Times said recently, we're back as the nightlife capital of the country. You know, there's, there's a real kind of... Um, buoyancy, I think, to Manchester at the moment. I want to ask you about Atom City, which sounds like the kind of comic book that I would read. This is a development, a technological development running around Rochdale. Am I right here? Tell me about it. Well, we've got Media City, mm-hmm. but this is Atom Valley. To Atom Valley, sort of sorry, balance yeah. up uh, uh, that. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, a building on what Creative Manchester has done successfully so far, where we have, if you like, clusters of... of uh, of industry, Media City is an obvious example in the creative and digital uh, space. Uh, this is our ambition to balance up our own city region and bring high quality jobs to Oldham, Rochdale, Bury. Where, I mean, if I could put it in its simplest terms, we might consider the commercial development of graphene. You know, this material that was isolated at the University of Manchester. You know. We, we see this site as being a place where we could have advanced materials research, advanced manufacturing, high quality jobs, um, and Atom Valley is, is our designated location. But this is quite far from the, uh, the sort of free range, pure market capitalism thing that conservative governments tend to superintend. You're sort of helping to shepherd something through as a regional mayor. Are you finding that maybe that behind the rhetoric that we've heard particularly from in the brief Liz Truss moments of pure wild market economics. But you find that behind the scenes, you are actually getting help from the current government. Just on, just on the former Prime Minister, I just was laughing this week. I mean, 
why does she think the world wants to carry on hearing her her thoughts in her big speeches in, in Washington? I, I kind of find that... You know, it was kind of weird. I don't know, but the government has kind of come, come back and back to the idea of zoning parts of the North, free ports. Um, they were called, you know, uh, growth zones or investment. You know, they keep coming back to these ideas. And, you know, the Greater Manchester ways, we will work with any government that's serious about uh, taking forward the uh, development of the north of England. And let's be honest, let's get serious. You know, we were really grateful to Michael Gove for the work that he did to help us develop a new devolution agreement, the Trailblazer devolution agreement we signed recently. So I think, you know, I, I said it before, but I think in quite divided times, English devolution is one of the very few things that is actually working at the moment and is producing cross-party uh, support as a result i think as a country we need to really cling on to it and really go for it and build it because you know there, there are a few things that, that really are bringing people together the thing that you asked me before about the difference between my old role in westminster and whitehall as a minister and this role i can say to you honestly that in this role i take a place first approach rather than a party first approach these roles i think need to be more than party politics you know you are there to serve the whole of the place all of the the people and you therefore can take a place first approach but that becomes something that kind of unifies people because wherever people are coming from on the political spectrum they do care about this place and i think that's why they're succeeding they are something different in english politics and and i um believe that this is a big part of, of our country's future, correcting this sort of failure to have power closer to, to where people live. Part of your responsibility is policing. And one of the kind of rough patches on your watch has been when Greater Manchester Police was put on special measures a couple of years ago. Um, as police and crime commissioner, there were accusations that you kind of placed the blame for its failings on senior, senior officers. But the force is now out of special measures and it's been tagged as the most improved force. We do have a policing crisis in this country, particularly in the Met. What did you concentrate on that worked with Greater Manchester Police and is it portable elsewhere? So to give you an honest answer, I came into this role knowing there were real issues um, that needed to be sorted out within GMP, particularly the culture internally, which which wasn't right. They, to be fair, they'd had a sustained period of cuts from t 2010 onwards, which all police forces had. But then you had that weakened police force that was then hit by the Manchester Arena attack in 2017. And so, obviously, the the, the moment by which changes could be made was taken away and we had to focus on helping them deal with the enormity of that. But I became more and more conscious of some of the issues when I set up, for instance, an inquiry into the implementation of a new computer system. That revealed a lot. But so did an inquiry that I set up into child sexual exploitation. So when I came in, contrary to what actually some far-right voices continue to say, I came in and immediately, on the back of the Three Girls documentary, I said we needed a look at how child sexual exploitation had been handled in Greater Manchester in the past and face up fully to the issues, no matter how uncomfortable they might be. So when it came to the point where HMIC said they needed to go into special measures, I didn't resist it. I never did. And in fact, took that as my opportunity to change, to make the changes I, I knew were needed. So the key one being a change of leadership 
I mean, that's, that's of course, the only power that you have as a PCC. People think you can interfere in this and investigate that, and of course not. That would be Russia if we could do that. We can't do that. So you can't interfere in the day-to-day running. But what you can do is change the leadership. I, I believe in Stephen Watson, uh, the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police. We now have an outstanding leader who is, is repairing uh, not just the front line and the policing numbers and all of that's been done, but just the, the culture internally, a front foot proactive approach to policing, accountable policing where the names of the teams are on the GMP website. It's, it's kind of the kind of Greater Manchester Police I've wanted to see for years and we've now finally got it. And I'm pretty proud actually of the turnaround that we've achieved together. You just announced you're going to stand for a third term as Manchester, Greater Manchester Mayor. I'm going to, have. I'm going to ask you the worst question you could be asked at this stage. <laughs> What's the biggest thing you've got wrong in the job that you want to address, do you think? I guess the one that you know people might think of would be the debate we've had about uh, the clean air zone. I feel frustrated about that because if it was my initiative, as some people claim it was, you know, that I decided to do this and you know I wanted to bring through a clean air zone in the ten boroughs, well, that would be one thing. But it's not that there was a legal direction served on the ten boroughs, um, which required them to take action to clean up uh, air pollution. So pre-pandemic, a scheme was developed that excluded cars because here we had a previous debate about congestion charge a number of years ago and. You know, people remember that and we didn't want to go down that path again, but looked at commercial vehicles and it felt more doable pre-pandemic. But what happened was the world really did change dramatically from a a vehicle point of view with the pandemic. And I guess if I'm going to answer your question honestly, I I woke up to it, but, but later than I should. Um, But, but now I think we are in the right position whereby um, we have said to the government, look, this you don't whack people to net zero with a big stick. Give them incentives. You know, We are already, as I said before, doing a huge amount to um, change transport. And we've got around uh, 200 electric buses on order for the city region that are going to come into service very soon. And they will do something quite significant to clean up our air. It's surely better, isn't it, to get to uh, a net zero position via incentives rather than via um, the big stick of fines. And that's still our position, but it's under review at the moment because the government is still pushing for a charging zone uh, on our city centre. So that debate's not over. I mean, I I don't think we got it drastically wrong because actually G- Greater Manchester was blew the whistle ourselves. We We went back to the government in late 2021 and said, look, this scheme isn't going to be workable in the in the same way as it as it was um, pre-pandemic, but you know that that was already you know quite quite far down the line. So yeah, th- those you learn about all of those things. But um, you know overall, I look at the city region today. I look at the skyline of our city centre. I kind of consider some of the things we've done on uh, rough sleeping, which was an early commitment. Uh, the free bus pass I've given to our kids. The change that's coming to our transport and I'm actually really proud about where we are today and where we're going. I want to ask you a bit about uh, Westminster. Um, in Ian Dunt's new book, Why Westminster Doesn't Work, Ian Dunt from our parish, you talk about how in Parliament, as an MP, you might find yourself doing things that kind of aren't you. You kind of feel yourself doing things that are different from the way that you would naturally behave for fear of stepping outside the party structure or getting caught in a gaff or having to constantly second guess yourself. 
as an MP, were there specific instances of that for you? Because I know you talked about how you were given, you were you were heckled at the Hillsborough Memorial in two thousand and nine, and were asking yourself, "Why am I doing this? What's going on here? What what, what path am I on?" Yeah, because obviously I, I didn't wander into Anfield that day as a sort of innocent abroad. You know, I was at the other semi final on the day of Hillsborough, and I kind of you know felt the absolute kind of sheer rage and, and injustice over the years at, at what happened. But I was finally in a position where I could do something. But to do it, I had to step outside of the, the Westminster consensus mm-hmm. and go it alone, really, uh, with other colleagues who, who were with me on it. But it was the big change moment in my political career. The day I kind of stood up at Anfield and walked forward to address the cop was the day I was taking my first steps out of the system because I kind of realised that it, it couldn't... The system I was in just was not programmed to hear the voice of the North. And, you know, I, I asked the question in the Commons when we finally got the um, inquest verdict of unlawful killing, how could an entire English city have cried injustice for 20 years and no one in here was listening? How 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 could that be allowed to happen? But it did happen. And I think what it says is that the system down there doesn't hear all places and all voices equally, and that's just a, a fact. So for me, I kind of had to sort of, I went through that. You know, I was never the same in Westminster after that because I was then looking at it all through very different eyes. And I realised, you know, in 2015, when I stood to be leader of the Labour Party on a ticket that was about the voice of the North and ending the sort of London-centric approach to life, and that was very much the theme of my campaign, I became more and more conscious that people didn't know who I was. And I suppose... The way I would describe it is when you kind of grow up here and you're kind of told to be a team player, you know, you kind of settle your differences in the dressing room, but you don't parade it and all that was my culture. And in Westminster, I did that. I was like loyal to all the leaders and voted in the ways that I was asked to vote, you know, obviously had my differences with them at times. But but if you do that and you go by the rules of Westminster, which is what you're meant to do with the whip system and everything, in the end, you're kind of a person that people probably don't know who you are because you've been taking the line to take in the media interviews and you've been voting a certain way. It makes, in some ways, you look a bit fraudulent, really, because it's you know it doesn't allow you to be the person that you are. And so maybe I learned that late, but in the end, I did, did learn it. And I think I'm a better politician today for some of what I did uh, in 2009 and started to sort of you know really look differently at things and think differently about things. And um, and that, in the end, brought me to this role I'm in now. The Labour Party. Lots of us have been amazed at the speed and the ruthlessness with which Keir Starmer has rebuilt it. He's restored his credibility, built a big poll lead. He's been totally merciless towards the left of the party. He's been deselecting people, preventing selections, ruling out any return for Corbyn. Is he overdoing it on that, as someone who's not, not really identified strongly with either wing of the party? Well, firstly, let me say, you know, if you look at the position in, in the polls, you know, we now have a realistic prospect of a Labour government, which is, you know, if we're honest, probably the first time in a decade, just over, that we're in that in that position. And a lot of the credit for that has got to go to um, Takir and the party in Parliament, where I would put down uh, something of a, a note of caution is not to sort of have factionalism on the other side and just trap the party in a sort of, sort of an ongoing factionalism that in the end doesn't really get get us where we need to you know my memory of the new labor years was that you know labor was 
quite a broad church there. You know, Dennis Skinner had his place and his voice. John Prescott did, was speaking to a... So, and there was quite a breadth there in, in terms of the, um, the movement. And I, I would say Labour at its best always does have that breadth. Um, so, you know, as I say, uh, you know, many things are being done right, but I would just say, you know, a Labour... A Labour government needs to be sustained by all parts of the Labour movement. You have in the past had ambitions to lead the party. You stood twice. Uh, it's pretty clear you're not now because you are standing for a third term as, as uh, Mayor of Greater Manchester. Um, but some might say that there would never be a better time to get back in and play a meaningful role in a Labour government. Were you not tempted? Did you not feel the itch? No, I genuinely can answer that straight off the bat and say and say no. You know, I did feel I'd run my course with Westminster. Coming in here to Greater Manchester Combined Authority, I had a profound sense of coming home. You know, when, when you walk into a Whitehall department, you kind of have the feeling that maybe if you're lucky, a third of the place is with you. <laughs> half if you're very lucky, but you know, you get the feeling that half isn't. Coming in here, I just had a sense of, you know, as I said before, because it's about the place, everyone was bought in. And, and I still feel that six years in, you know, this is a great place to work, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Greater Manchester generally is a great place to work. And it's authentic, actually, because I'm, you know, kind of, you know, I don't have to consult any scripts. I don't take my kind of orders from anybody. You know, we do what we feel is right for here. And so, see, the thing with the question, and people do ask me that question a lot, it would be wrong of me to kind of say, oh, yeah, I want to get back. Because what I think we're building here is the answer to the problems that I felt when I was last there, which is more ability for more places to do more for themselves and set their own course rather than kind of constantly going down on bended knee and begging for Whitehall to, to, to have this or that. What Steve Rotherham's doing in Liverpool and what I'm doing here uh, and Tracy is doing in West Yorkshire, I think this is a big part of making this country more functional, make it work better for people, make politics work better for people. And I'm definitely not in a mood of abandoning it now. But a couple of steps down the line, um, Starmer uh, says his plans to abolish the Lords and it will be effectively replaced by an assembly of nations and regions. Well, you get to be the proper king of the north, <laughs> yeah, and not you, just called one. Are you, are you seriously saying that kind of sitting in a uh, some sort of a, a Senate in the, it would be better than being here on the ground? But you are here on the ground because if it's if you're the great mayor of Greater Manchester, you would presumably be part of it. I know, that. but this is our country's problem, the idea that in the end, Westminster is the be-all and end-all, and if you're not there, nothing else matters. Well, it doesn't say it'll be in London. It might I, be here. I you know. know. Well, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Uh, I'll believe that when I see it. But um, no, I, I, I genuinely, I, and I mean this in all sincerity, Steve Rotherham and I took a joint decision to leave because we realised through our work on Hillsborough, but on other things too, that this, we couldn't advance the cause of our people and our places there because it was just not set up to, to, to hear it, as I said before. So hence, something really different was needed. They may laugh, but when we do things on the buses, the £2 fare that we all introduced on the buses before the government did it, that connects more than a lot of the policies that they talk about down there. Just finally then, two enormous things for you in, in, in your own life, the music and football, Everton. It's not looking good at well, the moment. This, this interview was going all right until you're, you're taking me to traumatic I'm, I'm, territory. I'm reaching out to you. Politics is kind of relatively easy. When, uh, you know. How are you feeling about Everton? I, I feel worried, um, if I'm being honest, um, because we went through a relegation battle uh, last year. And they are not pleasant, um, particularly when you support 
the aristocracy of English football, which is Everton Football Club. Um, <coughs> Citation needed, carry on. <laughs> well, we are, founder <laughs> member, original club in the great city of Liverpool. Um, it, you know, it's hard, It's you know, and, and I think what makes it extra difficult is we know we're also witnessing the, the dying days of the old lady, and by that I mean Goodison Park, which is the last great English football ground. Now, you could say Craven Cottage, but... Craven Cottage has never had the grandeur of Goodison Park, never the atmosphere of Goodison Park. And when we go now, we're going into it knowing that we're going, you know, each visit we make is one visit closer to the closure of Goodison Park. And when you add into that the trauma of a, a relegation battle, it's kind of all, all a bit much, really. Do I kind of see hope with Sean Dyche? Definitely. Um, you know, he, he's, he, he's, if anyone can get us out of this, then, then Sean is that man. You're getting a, a Deitchian kind of rumble of emotion in your throat. I there, am, I'm I am, I do. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, people know, I, I don't make any secret of it here. You know, the only thing I can say here is we are the acceptable face of Merseyside football in Greater Manchester. So that carries me a little <laughs> bit of the, of the way. Uh, well, but, I was going to say, does it help neither supporting City United? Nice it definitely you does. We're all, yeah. I always say to them all here, we're all in favour of Liverpool losing every game they play, aren't we? And and that generally carries a majority uh, here when I, when I, when I say, I'm joking apart, you know, I've obviously you know, got huge respect for all of the, um, all of the clubs of the, of the Northwest, the, the four big clubs are, are kind of four pillars, aren't they, of this of this part of the world? And um, you know, it's um, it's a worrying time, but there is emotion bound up in it. But I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I, you know, you put all of my kind of passions and things around him, and music's a massive passion. But Everton Football Club has been the burning passion of my life. Well, to finish on an up note, then music. You played a back to back set to benefit for the homeless of Manchester with uh, sought after DJ Angela Rayner. Well, she was on my team. Yes. And uh, we were having a DJ battle with Mr. Rotherham and his team. Yes. He, he had Peter Reid and uh, <laughs> Sue Johnson turned up and <laughs> Peter Hooten from the farm and Ian McCulloch turned Good up for him. Yeah. Well, Angela actually caught a bit of stick because she was she was properly going wild to oh. set you free by M Trance. And I thought I thought it was a great and a it genuine thing. Totally authentic. Yeah. And it was brilliant. And I was so proud of her for coming and and you know politicians get the thing oh they're not normal people they're all a bit odd and and so Angela none of those things she's totally real and, you and then know. when somebody behaves like a normal person and then you get it's like, yeah. yeah yeah but no but and I don't think she you know she knew that that might be the case but I when I looked when I asked her for for her songs and I, and I, I saw that uh, entrance come up I kind of I, I kind of had a sense of where, where she was going with it but it was brilliant because you know that was big song of, of, of her era and um, I was playing songs of mine. I, I just think, you know, this is what I mean about these roles. You just, you get back in the real world. Yeah. You get totally back in the real world when you do the jobs that we do. And, you know, and Andrew's never left the real world and that's why she sort of stands out so much in, in Parliament. It's why we love her so much here in Greater Manchester. What's your floor filler then? Do you know, I've thought a lot about this. I'm not going to give you a glib answer. I think the true icons of Manchester music through the ages, the band that has stayed most relevant and sounds modern now, and I said this when I introduced them on stage in Austin at South by Southwest, is New Order. New Order are the iconic, epic Manchester band for the generations. And the floor filler, oh, everyone would say Blue Monday. I think it's Bizarre Love Triangle, actually. Whenever I DJ, I always notice that one really get that really 
creates a reaction. So that's my uh, that's my answer. Andy Burnham in his Joe Blogs and his Bucket Hat. <laughs> Thank you for joining us in the bunker. Thank you very much. <laughs> hope you enjoyed this edition if so please think about backing us on patreon to help the worker bees of the bunker to carry on podcasting you'll get every edition early plus stylish merchandise search patreon bunker podcast or just follow the links in the show notes to find out more i'm andrew harrison thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow the bunker was presented by andrew harrison lead producer is jacob jarvis group editor andrew harrison audio productions by me robin lieburn and the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Pognos production.